Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us. Lots to talk about on the show today. And as I mentioned in talking with Mike Smith, coming up in this half hour, we are expecting to hear from Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart as he does his weekly address on COVID-19 response. Uh, He's also going to be asked, I'm sure, about uh, this other story, which has to do with cutting the police budget. And we're going to talk about that. Uh, We'll hear from that, hear from the mayor on that, hopefully. And then we're also going to talk to a Vancouver City Councillor about that after the 1230 news today. We're also going to talk about ICBC. Would you like to see a rebate given what the financials at ICBC look like right now? And traveling on the long weekend, why many smaller communities are continuing to put the message out for people to not visit, at least not yet. But right now, let's talk about what's happening with BC restaurants. A lot of people anticipating and looking forward to some kind of return to in-dining at restaurants and pubs. But what might it look like? And could a liquor discount to be a defining moment. Let's bring Ian Tostenson back on the line, president and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Association. Thanks so much for being back with us. Totally, Jill. How are you doing? Uh, very well. Uh, the latest uh, in this uh, is now this idea of liquor discounts for restaurants. It's certainly something we've talked about in the past. Do you think that it's a pandemic that's finally going to get this done? Yeah, unfortunately I do. But fortunately, I'm off. I guess what, what changed here, we've been talking to governments about this for years, and but I think that the, the government and the Premier and uh, Minister Evie totally recognize the, the, uh, the financial devastation of the industry. There's not a lot of levers that it has to come back, but the ones that do have, um, you know, in this case, uh, for your listeners, it's the ability for a restaurant to buy uh, their liquor at a discount to what they're purchasing now because they're buying it now at retail. So if it's 10 or 15%, that's going to really help uh, the margins on the profitability. So, yeah, the pan- pandemic really had helped us advance this because um, prior to that, it was kind of like, well, who else is doing this? But what we're seeing with the government of Victoria is, uh, is the government is very proactive, uh, very responsive, and, and almost intuitive on these kind of things because this follows on the heels also, as you know, I talked about, Jill, um, delivering alcohol when you order your food for your takeout. So these, all these things will add up and help, uh, help the industry greatly. And what about the idea? So then if, so if we're talking about liquor and being able to buy it at a discount or to have a bit more flexibility there, because in the past we've seen restaurants being raided when they didn't purchase their liquor through the BC uh, liquor distribution, and that's, that uh, was something that they could be raided and fined. So would that be a thing of the past? Um, that will be a thing that passed that this is not contemplated. You'll still have to buy your liquor from a BC liquor store. Um, but there is discussions about how we can now start to, this is great, start to shift some of the purchasing into the private sector, the you know, private beer and wine stores. But we haven't quite figured it out yet. We're trying to do uh, the, with the government is sort of two approaches. One is what's needed now to get through COVID or help with this whole crisis. And then what's nice in the future the ability for a restaurant to buy from the private sector is nice too in the future, but it's not going to change the model today. Um, but wholesale pricing will. So we've been really clear with the government uh, back and forth. So let's make sure we focus on the big stuff that uh, is needed now. But there is a lot of developmental um, thinking going on for the future around, you know, exactly what you said is 
you know, avoiding. It, it seems kind of silly going by from one spot. And they'll, we'll get there, but it's not a priority at this point. And do you think at this point, because there have been, it's been a very difficult time for the restaurant industry, if that's something that restaurants are then allowed to do, what are the chances that those savings are going to be passed on to consumers? Because I would think that restaurants are going to be looking to see how much money they can make and recoup a lot of their losses. Yeah, I mean, the honest answer is um, I think they're going to need every single part of that margin to uh, to help them through this. It's it's that bad. Um, I, I don't. I mean, I think that you'll see, um, especially when you see the takeout. There's some great value on you know bottles of wine and they they discount and stuff. I think that'll help. I mean, you're not you're still going to see that, but by and large, you're going to see the operators saying, you know what, uh, I really appreciate the fact they can make ten or fifteen percent more on this. Um, as a way to sort of try to recover the, the, the devastation that they're in right now, which is very deep. So that's the honest answer. I'd like to say, oh, sure, I'll pass it on. That's not realistic when you have such economic uh, malaise in the industry. No, and I would, I would hope that consumers would understand that and realize that this, yeah. is, this is something that's going to maybe help restaurants stay open and not have to close their doors permanently. So let's get it done. Totally. Absolutely. And I, and I think you're right. The public will... Uh, you know, as long as we're open and honest about it, I mean, there'll be people that, that pass on a little bit of fun here and there. But I think by and large, um, the job here is to stabilize the industry and get it moving forward again. Uh, what about patios? We've seen a few places. Uh, we talked to the North Vancouver city mayor about uh, her push. She's written letters wanting to open up uh, as well patio and public spaces. I know in Delta, they're talking about that as well. Uh, we've also seen a couple of restaurants uh, explain, which I found really interesting, the price of what it costs to put tables on the patios or on the or uh, try and get it on a sidewalk. Are you seeing that fast track? Do you think we'll see movement there? Yeah, so we wrote a letter. We're trying to be disruptive, right? And we, we just, we just don't, do not accept anything that's happened uh, four months ago is the way it should be today. So we wrote a letter with our colleagues, uh, the Wine Institute, the uh, Brewers, and Able BC, to every municipality and um, mayor and council and said, you got to make this thing happen because we're now restricted from after the 19th when restaurants start to open. They're restricted in terms of space because it has to be physical distancing. So the way to do that, and the, and the premier acknowledges as well too, is, patio space, underutilized roads, underutilized parking spots. So let's make this thing happen and let's not go into, well, can I have an application and diagram and a $500 fee and I need to have fences and this will go on and on until it, it, it starts to rain and snow outside, is that make it simple. And so in Kelowna, as an example, uh, the city of Kelowna is saying our approach is going to be maybe an email, a phone call, and you will make the approval. We're going to just get on with this. And so uh, we're starting to see District North Vancouver uh, taking the same approach. We're having mayors actually writing us saying, how can I help? What do I need to do? I want to get on this. And because they realize that it's a health issue because Dr. Henry said, get outside, it's better. And um, and it's also a way to help s- solve the, the business. And it's also a way to um, get the public excited. And in Toronto, they're talking about using parts of the uh, of the park to set up areas where maybe you have a lottery of restaurants and so they can, they can spin to the audience. So maybe they have rules one day or an independent restaurant the next day. So all sorts of innovation. And, um, and I even think that the city of Vancouver passed a motion yesterday to get on with it themselves. I think you're going to see the city of Vancouver moving fast on this as well, too, because if they don't, Jill, I honestly, my heart of hearts believe if they hold it up, they make it expensive at the expense of not allowing a business to, expand and go onto a patio, a simple thing like a couple of chairs at a table, 
uh, we're going to lose more businesses than we need to. And it, it's that important. So I think they understand that. Well, which yeah, I mean, it was good. To, it was good to see uh, Vancouver Council do that to, and seem to be doing it quickly yesterday. Uh, Ian, just before I let you go, Monday is the day I believe it is that that restaurants can start opening. Realistically, how how what percentage wise do you know? Do you think we'll start to see restaurants on that day? Yeah, we'll see a few, but I think the majority will be probably June first. The unfortunate part is that uh, WorkSafe uh, told us that they would have the guidelines, which are largely based on the guidelines we put in. Um, I understand, out by Wednesday, and today's Thursday. Now I just heard from them that it's going to be tomorrow morning. They want to put out all sectors at the same time, mm. um, and that's fine. But the problem is there are restaurants sitting right now going, how many people do I hire, how many tables, what's going to happen here? So business hates uncertainty, and unfortunately, we're two days behind. Um, so I think that's going to push opening dates out to probably closer, in the majority of cases, to June 1st. All right. Uh, we'll leave it there. Ian, thanks again so much. Soon a patio and soon a cold beer, a glass of EQA wine, Jill. Thanks for being with us. Just before the break, we were listening to Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart outlining some of the numbers when it ta- when he was looking at job losses in the city of Vancouver. Significant with a lot of businesses in the city shuttering during this pandemic. Saying out of the 32,000 businesses in the city of Vancouver, 13,400 shuttered and about 90,000 jobs lost, albeit temporarily. Uh, before that news conference, though, we uh, already had invited Vancouver City Councillor with the NPA, Sarah Kirby Young, to join us because we want to talk about another story that has come to light. This one from Vancouver's police chief, and he is expressing a lot of concern about a budget cut to the department approved by City Council. In an email that was sent yesterday and obtained by Global News, Chief Adam Palmer talked about the motion that was passed in camera to cut the police budget by 1%, that to help offset the financial impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Vancouver Council passing the resolution by 1%, Palmer saying that it could, in fact, translate into a multi-million dollar cut from the budget to upwards of around $8.5 million. So let's bring in Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young, who joins us on the phone now. Thank you so much for being with us again. Hi, Jill. How are you? Uh, good, thanks. How about you? Good, thanks. Uh, I know you can't go into the details of all that happens in an in-camera meeting, but what can you tell us about this decision that was made to have a cut of the police budget? Well, I can tell you that uh, City Council did meet yesterday and the results, um, the decision from that meeting is now public and has been publicly released. And it was last evening to the police chief, the police board and the union heads um, regarding a decision that was taken um, in an in-camera meeting to reduce the police budget by, as you said, the approximately $8.5 million. Why was this done in an in-camera meeting instead of at a, a public or a council meeting where the public could have followed along and would have known? It's a great question, and uh, I, I want to provide some context for your listeners. Is that I'm actually married to a VPD officer, and so I have the right to vote on the overall police budget. I do that um, in public, which is where that happens. Um, we debate the budget and how much we're going to allocate to police and fire and other expenses um, transparently in the public eye. When it comes to anything that relates to the collective agreement for the police department, I recuse myself on those decisions. So, you know, I wasn't privy to this decision, but I question why. The decision that impacted the, a reduction in the operational budget was not done in the public eye transparently. And what answer did you get? Um, I, I don't have an answer for that one, and, and I'm perplexed because when we vote on the overall police budgets, I say those decisions happen in public. I, I think what's also troubling and what I'm hearing is that 
we're in a really tough situation in the pandemic and there are going to be financial impacts and conversations need to happen. Um, but what I'm hearing from the police chief and from the head of the union today is that there wasn't a dialogue that happened. There's, you know, a letter that went back and forth, but there was no discussion that city council intended to take some action. Um, and I think that when you are talking about frontline first response services that affect public safety in the middle of a pandemic, it's really important to have those conversations to ensure that those decisions that you are making are not going to result in laying off boots on the ground and officers who are on the front lines. Did the city go to the police department and the fire department to those frontline workers prior to this decision and ask them to find ways to, to make cuts? The city uh, city council did publicly endorse um, a decision to send a letter to the Vancouver Police Board, who is the employer um, of uh, all the police officers, um, and asked them to identify what savings they could. Um, and uh, so that, that component was public. Right. And and from what I understand, then there, there wasn't a response from the Vancouver Police Department saying, OK, here's what we can cut. There was a response that came back. Uh, there was a letter that came back. That was That's also been publicly released this morning by the city of Vancouver um, and the city manager's office released that. Um, and the VPD did indicate that they didn't think that they could find savings without compromising public safety. Did the did council have that letter then before the decision was made in camera to do the one percent cut? Council has received received that letter prior to this uh, decision that was apparently taken by council. Yes, uh, the police chief is saying he's not going to take any action at this point. Uh, that uh, I suppose standing behind what's in that letter that there is nowhere for them to cut. Uh, so what do you what do you anticipate happening? Well, I think that this is—I think this has been really poorly handled. And as I said, I think that um, there needed to be an invitation from um, folks on council to sit down and have a discussion around what those impacts would be, um, and could efficiencies be found without that resulting in officers. I know that Chief Palmer is saying that he does think this, there's going to be a reduction in officers. I know they have obligations um, around employees and compensation, and I'm not going to speak to those, but. What I am concerned about and, and what I have to make decisions on as a city councillor is making sure we have the right level of public safety in the city. And during a pandemic, what are we seeing? We're seeing an increase in hate crimes. We're seeing an increase in commercial crime. We're seeing an increase in VPD taking weapons off people off the street. Um, and I think that that's really troubling. You're also seeing um, an essential service where people go to work every day and they don't have a choice. They can't work from home. They can't stay home. Um, they can't be furloughed like the city of Vancouver staff that are temporarily laid off. Um, and I think, too, it, it seems simplistic at first glance to make a reduction in the police budget. But remember, if you're laying off a, a police officer and they go through rigorous training, it costs the police department about $100,000 per officer to train those officers. So you're losing that investment. Um, and you're losing it at a time when we know that the city of Surrey is going to be recruiting very shortly um, and quickly in order to fill um, their role of a new civic police force. So there's a lot of factors at play, and that's, I think, my point here, is that you need to really think them through. Have any other sectors or in the budget, because we talked about this before, that when when the, the mayor went to, to the province, uh, provincial government saying we need $200 million at least, or he's gone to the both the provincial and federal levels for a bailout, uh, they went back and said, no, we're not, we're not doing that. So, has there been any other attempt as far as going through the budget, looking at other places where money can be found? Uh, from my perspective, no. I think that a lot of the measures, there, there has been 
sort of cursory identification of savings, um, things that are discretionary that you would expect that are no-brainers like cutting travel or discretionary expenses. People can't travel anyway. Um, discretionary expenses, that makes sense. Um, the cuts that have been made when we refer to, you know, you know, heart goes out to all of our staff, but to the city workers that have been laid off are intended to be temporary. That's how they've been positioned, and they relate specifically to, uh, again, frontline people that work in community centres, libraries, etc. What the city has not done is look internally to reduce our core and, and our other expenses. So we, we've trimmed around the edges. Um, we have temporary layoffs, but we haven't taken any substantial savings reductions from my point of view. Do you think this was done in camera to try and avoid public scrutiny? I I can't speak to the specifics of, of an in-camera discussion or the motivations of the councillors, but I can say that I think that it's in this day and age um, and in the time of a pandemic, transparency in your government is really important. Um, and uh, I, I think that if you're going to talk, if the city council can discuss the police budget um, in public and say, this is what we're allocating every year for the budget, then I think we can discuss it in public when we're talking about overall reductions. And again, it's up to the police board as the employer, if they have to reduce the budget, what that actually means um, in terms of whether they cut admin expenses, whether they cut officers, and how they choose to execute that. Um, I'm really troubled that there isn't a dialogue, and now this appears to have become a really divisive situation, which is the last thing that we need as a city in the middle of a pandemic. Is it a done deal as far as the 1% cut? Because now we have the police chief saying he's not taking any action. Is, is it, I mean, do, are we at a, at a stalemate with this, or what, what happens now? Well, I think the police board has, and what people don't realize, is a fair amount of independence. Um, it is There is a lot of provincial governing legislation for police that, yes, the city of Vancouver is a funding partner, um, but the police has, and they should, um, a fair degree of independence in how they operate and how they're funded. So, um, you know, if you look at the police board, five of those seven members of the board are appointed by the province. So you know, that sort of indicates a, a balance there of, of where that power sits. And um, it, I, I think they really do have avenues of recourse in terms of challenging this decision. All right. So we will leave it there. Councillor, thank you again. Always appreciate your time. No worries, Jill. Have a good show. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. As you know, the Premier and other officials in this province, Dr. Ronnie Henry, have been asking people, if you do want to get out and enjoy the long weekend, to stay close to home, to stay in your community, whatever that might mean to you, and to avoid all non-essential travel. Well, today we're also hearing from some First Nations saying that, yes, we would like you to adhere to those rules too and to Please not come to certain parts of the province where people might be vulnerable and there would be a risk of spreading COVID-19 through that region. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this and why this call has been put out, we are joined by Gary Reese. He is the mayor of the Laxquilams First Nation and he joins us on the line now. Mayor Reese, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. What exactly are you asking for uh, from British Columbians, particularly this coming weekend? Well, we're, you know, we as leaders, we cannot stand by as our people are exposed to non-essential travelers who, who may be exposed to, to them COVID-19. And, you know, the government has simply asked you to stay local. Well, we're telling you and may even have to demand or keep it, keep our community safe. Are you and, seeing people, um, are people still coming to, to that region or are, are non-essential travelers, are you seeing them? Yes, in, in Prince Rupert there, we have all these um, sport fishermen that are coming in there to have their Alberta license plate uh, on their vehicles. 
and also some from Saskatchewan. Hmm. And I should have asked you this right off the top, but in case people aren't aware, what particular, what exact um, area are we talking about? Uh, Prince Rupert. We're up uh, north here in Prince Rupert, BC, and which is our traditional territory all around this area. And at this point, so can BC Ferries, are they accessing or are people able to access the, that region on BC Ferries right now as well? Well, BC Ferries comes into Prince Rupert, yes. Right, and that hasn't, I know BC Ferries has talked about that they couldn't go to an essential-only travel model unless they were ordered to by the government, and that hasn't happened. So is that a concern for you, that, that people are still able to arrive on ferries? That is a huge concern for us, and not only that, but driving driving um, up to Prince Rupert. When you talk about the, the fishing lodges, then it seems like that could be something that if we're asking people to stay close to home and to have a staycation, if they do need to get out, uh, that they could only issue licenses or, 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 or put in some kind of rule for that. But it sounds like that, that's not happening at this point. It's not happening at this point, no. Now, have you reached out to the province or to the DFO to ask if there could be some more regulations? Well, we've been requesting a meeting with Premier Hogan to discuss ban and non-essential travel. And ask that both the BC and Alberta governments take a more active role in educating the public about the risk recreational visits posed to the First Nation community. And what response and, have you had so far? Um, I just wanted to say we're also issuing... Um, and issuing fresh water licenses that the government of BC provide information telling people to stay local and not to travel to other regions and to fish. Licenses should not be issued to people outside of the region. And the province should assist in first, uh, the nations in asking the Federal Department of Fisheries knows not to issue saltwater fishing licenses for the region to people living outside of the region. Right, and has there been any, any movement on that? No, there hasn't been. Uh, we've we were we've been looking for uh, to get a meeting with the premier and uh, to to have that discussion and then we haven't been successful yet what happens when you do see people if you like you said if you see people with alberta license plates or saskatchewan or people that clearly are visiting uh, is it is it trying to educate or talking to them or are there interactions going on well there there hasn't been any yet there and um we we're hoping to get that uh, meeting with the premier to to address that, and but that hasn't happened yet. Hmm. Uh, have there been any cases of COVID nineteen in your community? Not in Prince Rupert or in uh, local Amps or any of our communities up there in the north. Uh, but um, I know there was a confirmed uh, case up in Kitimat. There are two confirmed cases there, and they were both in the terrace hospital. So I haven't heard any more other than that. And when that happened, we took. Um, we put our community in a lockdown because they were getting too close to home. Because what would happen as far as uh, the infrastructure or the medical, uh, d- d- uh, what you have in place then to to treat people if we, people were to come down with this? We don't have anything. It's, that's the sad part and and the scary part. If it hits to our communities, uh, we don't have anything to to treat that. Hmm. That's got to be that's got to be concerning to you then. And at this point, so on the the good side, the fact that there aren't cases, but that's got to be a concern with the possibility of someone bringing it in. Yes, it is. It's a huge concern for us. 
Have you also asked the the residents of of the or residents that that the permanent residents there to not leave and come back? Well, we had a lockdown here, and uh, we didn't allow anyone in or out. Um, our, our members that live in Prince Rupert. We have over a thousand members that live in Prince Rupert, mm-hmm. and so when those cases came that confirmed in terrorists there, we had a lockdown, and we didn't allow our members to come into our community, and we weren't allowing our members going into Prince Rupert um, unless it was medical. Right. Uh, I understand that if uh, you see more people coming or nothing's done to stop uh, this movement of people, you might set up uh, some kind of information blockade or a blockade banning non-essential travel. What would it take, do you think, for that to happen? Well, we're, we're looking at doing the information session there sometime next week. And, uh, you know, if there's going to be a, a lot of um, uh, non-essential travelers coming in, like the sport fishermen there, then I think we're going to be looking at doing a blockade to, to stop that. And, and would that be a blockade on land? Or what about people that are arriving by boat? Well, we have, um, it'll be on land, and uh, we have a reserve um, that the highway goes through up and going up to Terrace there, IR-26 Elvis. Mm-hmm. And so that's where we're looking at uh, doing an information session by the start. All right. Well, we will leave it there. Uh, Mayor, thanks so much, though, for joining us uh, to talk about uh, this uh, and the concerns that you and some others in that part of the province have. Appreciate your time today. All right. I'm laughing a little bit and you will understand why when you match the music to our next topic. We're going to take a little break from COVID-19 coverage to bring you a very cool story about the northern spotted owl. And members of a program in Langley are pretty happy about the successful hatching of a northern spotted owl chick. And that's because the numbers aren't great. So let's bring in Jasmine McCullough at the northern spotted owl breeding program. She joins us on the line now. Jasmine, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. How did this all get started and how did we get to the point where we are today and celebrating this uh, baby owl? Um, So the program has been uh, around since 2007, so quite a while, but um, the reason that we have the program in in existence is because there's less than 10 spotted owls left in the wild in Canada and they're all in British Columbia. So um, our job at the breeding program is essentially to breed spotted owls in captivity and then hopefully we can release them into protected old growth forest habitat. Um, And this this chick is is a great step in a uh, forward direction to get us to that goal. And so how rare is it? Is this the first chick that's been been successfully hatched in in captivity or or how difficult is that? It is a very difficult species to breed in captivity. So we are the only program in the world breeding this species. We've had some success. So we we've had about a dozen chicks in um, since the start of the program. But the last few years, we've seen a significant increase in the number of chicks we're able to produce. And um, this chick is just the first of um, hopefully a handful this year. Um, so we currently have three and we're hoping to get a couple more after that as well. And and where did the parents, uh, the parent owls come from? So um, Sadine, who was named for the Canucks, um, he is actually born in captivity at the breeding program in 2012. Um, and his mate Amore is from the wild that was brought in to increase the genetic diversity of the breeding program.
Uh, you've kind of answered my question because my next uh, concern was if there's less than 10, there's got to be some inbreeding going on there. Right. So we've been pretty lucky right now that we have done genetic testing and there is no inbreeding in our population at this time. Um, we've uh, strategically paired our, our owls up so that there is minimal inbreeding. And we do have the option of bringing in some uh, birds from the United States as well. Uh, so right now we have three American birds in the program, which really helps with the genetics. Is there a goal then on how many spotted owls you would like to breed and put back in the wild as far as I'm guessing the goal is to bolster the numbers or have a, a healthy population in the wild? Yeah, so uh, historically there were about a thousand spotted owls in British Columbia. Um, so not a heck of a lot, but was still a significant decrease. Um, so we're hoping that we'll be able to have two, 200 in the wild and that will then become a self-sustaining population. So it is a long-term project, so it's not something that's going to be solved in one breeding season. So we are um, constantly um, trying to improve to increase our numbers, but it's going to be uh, quite a while before we get to those 200 individuals in the wild. Uh, and what happened to bring the numbers down to such a small number? So they are an old growth dependent species. So they need trees and forests that are about 150 years old. And one pair of spotted owls needs about uh, 30 square kilometers of habitat. So um, unfortunately, that type of habitat's not around in British Columbia that much anymore. And especially in the lower mainland, there's actually no suitable habitat for them left here. But um, we're hoping that they'll be, be able to be released more um, in like the provincial parks in Manning Park up in Lillooette area, those kinds of kinds of places. Um, so it's, it's due to logging and there's also competition from a very common species called the barred owl. So the barred owl is a generalist species that can thrive in all different types of habitat. Um, but it's actually originally from the east coast of North America. So it's only been here for the last hundred or so years. And it's caused a lot of problems for native species. Mm-hmm. So do they have predators other than loss of habitat? Do they have actual predators in the wild? Uh, great horned owls may prey on them, but the primary um, interaction that would be uh, with the barred owl. So it's a competition factor there. So they're competing for the territory and the food and nesting sites. And and is it challenging then when you have the owls, the breeding program in captivity, then is it in, does instinct kick in or do you have to do what do you have to do to if you release them to make sure that they survive in the wild? So we breed all of the food on site as well as um, we do, we have rats and mice on site. So we do have the option of feeding live prey to the owls. So prior to release, we want to make sure that they're firstly not accustomed to humans and also that they're able to hunt on their own. So um, having the live prey is an important factor in that. And I understand there's a webcam where people can, if they want to see Chick J or see the parents or watch along, they can do that? Yeah, definitely. So we partnered with the Fish and Wildlife Compensation Program. So they're hosting uh, a live 24-hour stream of Sedin and Amore and Chick J on the nest. So that can be found at their website, fwcp.ca. All right. And is Chick J his final name or, or where did that name come from? So uh, it is not his final name. Um, we haven't decided on a name yet. So um, it, it comes from his egg letter. So we label each egg with the alphabet and he just happened to be Egg J. Um, so that's that's just for now. It's Chick J. <laughs> I sense a name competition in the future. 
Yeah, maybe. We'll see. Just uh, <laughs> We'll be posting about it, that on our social media for sure. All right. And so how long then, Chick Jay, he's a cute little thing right now. How long till he's, uh, how long do, do, does it take for them to kind of grow up and to become adult uh, spotted owls? So he'll probably, he's grown significantly since we put him back about a week ago, but um, he'll probably stay in the nest for another two weeks, I would say. Um, and then he's going to leave the nest and we call that fledging. Uh, he'll still be quite fluffy, but by the end of the summer, he'll look pretty identical to his parents um, and no more no more baby fluff by the end of the summer. And he'll actually have spots? Yeah, he definitely will. Yeah, you can see it really well on the top of the, the heads of Sedina and Amore in the nest. So that's where we get the name Spotted Owl from is the, the polka dots on the tops of their heads. All right. So how, how big of a deal is this as far as the program and the success of the program? It's a big deal because, um, you know, when we first started this program, we were doing one chick a year. Um, and now this is kind of like the start of a, a really productive season for us. So, um, and the, the genetics of this chick are really important. So Sedina and Amore are a relatively new pair. Uh, they did have one offspring last year, but this year is their sex. They've actually had three total this year, which is incredible to have three babies from one pair. Um, so it's, it's just genetically a really important individual. All right. So we will uh, follow along. I'm sure a lot of people will be signing on and taking a look at the family uh, via the webcam. Jasmine, thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you so much.